All right. Well, hello, and welcome to Sustainable Business Fridays, hosted by the Bard MBA in Sustainability. My name is Stephanie Milbergs, and I am Assistant Director of the program. Before we launch into our conversation with Dr. Mark Jacobson, I want to provide some brief background about the Bard MBA in Sustainability. We are one of a few programs globally that fully integrate sustainability into our curriculum from the ground up. We are a low-residency program where part of our courses are taught online and the other portion are taught over long weekend residencies in New York City. We are a deeply experiential program with first-year students partaking in a course called NYC Lab where they work on real-world sustainability challenges for clients. In recent years, clients have included UBS, Unilever, and Lockheed Martin. This year, we are working with Con Ed Solutions, HSBC, and Inward Point, a startup. I will now turn over the conversation to our MBA student host, Amy Califa, who will introduce Dr. Jacob. Thanks, everybody, for joining today's podcast. We're going to spend some time together up in the cloud. For artists and poets, the atmosphere is real and incredible. It inspires imagination. For many of us, it's just invisible. But for Professor Mark D. Jacobson, the atmosphere is very real. And his research is helping us see the implications of that reality. Mark Jacobson is Director of the Atmosphere and Energy Program and Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford University. He's also a Senior Fellow of the Woods Institute for the Environment and of the Precourt Institute for Energy. And for my fellow students who think the Bard MBA program is pretty intense, listen to these academic credentials. <laughs> Professor Jacobson received a BS in civil engineering, an AB in economics, and an MS in environmental engineering from Stanford in 1988. He received an MS and PhD in atmospheric sciences in 1991 and 1994, respectively, from UCLA and he started on the faculty at Stanford in 1994. Mark develops and applies computer models to understand air pollution, global warming, and renewable energy resources. He's published two textbooks of two editions each and 140 peer-reviewed <coughs> journal articles. He received the 2005 American Meteorological Society Henry G. Houghton Award and the 2013 American Geophysical Union Ascent Award for his work on Black Carbon Climate Impacts, and the 2013 Global Green Policy Design Award for Developing State and Country Energy Mark served on an advisory committee to the U.S. Secretary of Energy, and he appeared on the David Letterman Show in 2013 to discuss converting the U.S. and the world to clean energy. Welcome to our podcast, Mark. Thank you very much, Amy. Um, let's, so, let's yeah. start off. Um, an overview of your work and your research. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you down this path and how your career has evolved? Well, yeah, my career, um, I went into this career, uh, well, I've been working since high, school, since high school. I knew what I wanted to do, which was to try to solve atmospheric air pollution and climate problems. And so that was back in the early 1980s. Um, but I didn't really get a good chance to start doing that until uh, I was doing my PhD when I worked on uh, urban air pollution in Los Angeles and developing a computer model to simulate air pollution. And from that, uh, I so I studied for a long time 
their impacts of different pollutants on air pollution and feedbacks between gases and particles and pollution and their impacts on local temperatures and health. And then I expanded that to look at global climate. I built a global climate model uh, or expanded my urban model into a global climate model and then have since been working on both global scales and urban scales to look at the impacts of pollutants on climate and air pollution and the feedbacks. Uh, but in the mid-90s, I became interested, well, I, was, I guess I was always interested, but I really became focused on looking at solutions to these climate and pollution problems in addition to understanding them better. And so looking at started looking at wind energy, but then in the mid-2000s, started looking at combining wind with other types of energy sources to see if it's possible to replace the current energy infrastructure with clean energy. And in about 2009, Mark DeLucci from UC Davis and I, we developed a kind of, we did a study looking at a worldwide scale, kind of a very high-in-the-sky study of can we actually power the entire world with renewable energy, uh, being wind, water, and solar power, and, and for all purposes, that's electricity, transportation, heating and cooling, and industry. And we concluded that, well, yeah, there's enough um, material to do this. There's enough uh, resources, wind and solar in particular. And uh, there, there's enough land. It doesn't take up a huge amount of land. So we looked at the land area required. We looked at the uh, materials required and even the cost and, and came to a conclusion that it was technically and economically feasible to do this, but of course a world plan is not really practical because you don't have people agreeing across the world to do this. So uh, we did, that was 2009, 2011, we did more detailed studies for the world and also we did a U.S. Uh, plan for the U.S. as a whole, which is still too large of a scale to really do anything practical. Um, then uh, around that time, 2011, um, I met with um, some people from New York, actually. Um, uh, Mark Ruffalo, who's an actor and activist, and Josh Fox, who is a, a director of the Gasland movies. And also uh, another person, uh, Marco Kraples, who's a banker from uh, California. And we were just, we just met by, because Mark Ruffalo and Josh Fox were addressing the tracking issues in New York, and they were looking for some alternatives. And we all got together for dinner and, and discussed, well, what could we develop a plan for New York, an energy plan? And first I said, well, I'd, I'd love to do it, but it just it takes so much time. And I said, I don't think I can do it. I could just put together maybe one paragraph and maybe somebody else can start working on it. But uh, later that evening, I started writing this paragraph and I just got inspired for some reason. I ended up, at the end of the night, I'd finished like, 20 to 21 pages of a draft plan for New York to change the energy infrastructure. And it might sound like, well, it's hard to do plan with 21 pages, but really what I did was they took a, or larger scale plans and I shrunk it down into a New York scale plan and just found some new numbers. But they took, you know, it ended up taking two more years to actually get something really detailed and publishable, but, you know, at least it was a start. But it was really then that we started this group because we all were very excited about trying to help change the energy infrastructure, starting with New York. And uh, we started this group called the Solutions Project. And, and the Solutions Project was behind the scenes for a couple of years. It only became public last year, um, maybe a year and a half ago. And 
uh, what this group really takes really involves a combination of uh, of science-based energy plans uh, with business leaders and business people who are engaged who want to help and benefit their own companies even and the general public and to who also are engaged and really the goal is to educate the public and policymakers about what's possible and to date we've developed well we being the science part of it and mostly at Stanford but also it's uh, researchers at Cornell for example uh, Tony and Grafia and Bob Howarth at Cornell have participated a lot um, and also UC Davis Mark um, Delucci and elsewhere um, along with but at Stanford we've had about 30 master's students and undergraduates each year helping out and a couple PhD students uh, developing plans we've now done plans for all 50 states of the US and we're halfway well we've got base plans for about 139 countries of the world so we've we've really taken this to another level to try to de automatize these development of plans for each state and you can actually go uh, to a website 100.org this is the number 100.org or it's also the solutionsproject.org, which is one word. And if you just go down, you can actually find a map of the U.S. and click on a state and up will come up with a summary of an, of an energy plan for that state. And basically these plans involve um, taking each energy sector, including electricity, transportation, heating, cooling, and industry, and... Uh, transforming them to as much as possible to wind, water, and solar power. So, for example, all electricity uh, in a state would be derived from either wind power, solar photovoltaics, either in rooftops or in power plants, um, concentrated solar power in some places, more in desert regions, um, geothermal power, hydroelectric power, and tidal and wave power. So those are the electric power generators and also solar for heat as well. Um, now in transportation, we'd convert all the gasoline and diesel vehicles to battery electric vehicles run on these what we call wind, water, and solar electric power options um, with some hydrogen fuel cell vehicles that where the hydrogen is produced from electricity from wind, water, solar. Now for heating and cooling, we'd use heat pumps which are existing technologies that run on electricity. They extract heat out of the air or the water or the ground and heat a room, or they can be run in reverse for air conditioning. They're very efficient. Or some electric resistance heating and some solar hot water preheating. Uh, for industry, everything would be electrified as well. So there'd be all the high temperature processes you'd use, you'd use electricity or hydrogen so, for example, there's electric resistance heating, electric arc furnaces, induction furnaces, dielectric heating. Those are all electric power options for heating industry. Um, now, with this, everybody asks, well, the, you know, the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. How can you keep um, the grid stable? And it turns out, well, so we've been working on that, how you keep the grid stable. Well, there are certain types of storage that we'd combine uh, with uh, this electricity infrastructure um, and so for example concentrated solar power is where like, that's where you in a desert you have uh, focused light off of mirrors onto a central tower to heat a fluid in the tower and that fluid can be stored overnight and can be used then 
at any time during the day or night to generate electricity by uh, running it by water to heat the water to create steam to run a steam turbine which generates electricity. So that's a way to store electricity for anywhere up to 24 hours usually. Um, there's also what's called pumped hydro storage and we'd just be using existing or proposed uh, pumped hydro. That's just where you use electricity during the day that's when you have too much generation, let's say, of sunlight and you pump water up a hill and then when you then when you need the electricity uh, you let the water drain down and uh, go past the turbine to generate electricity. Um, the same thing with the existing hydroelectric power, you can use it more wisely just by only using it as last resort whenever you need power when you don't have it and you just uh, then you can have the water go down and uh, down the dam, the reservoir and dam and run a turbine to generate electricity. But there's another other types of heat, uh, I mean storage, that are very, uh, people don't know much about. Um, there's what's called seasonal heat storage in soil. So there's a community, for example, in Canada called Drake Landing, where they have a whole community that uh, in the summer there's a, they heat, they have solar collectors on roofs and they heat a fluid that then goes to heat water that heats soil heat the soil up during the summer and the soil is insulated so that that heat can stay, the soil can stay hot until winter and then they run this whole thing in reverse and use it to heat 90% of the buildings uh, in the winter. So it's called seasonal heat storage. And there's another kind of storage called ice storage where it's during the day, like during the day uh, when you have extra electricity you can f uh, freeze water to make ice and Sorry, you do this at night when you have extra electricity, and then during the day, the next day, let's say it's a hot summer day, you can then melt the ice to create uh, for cooling water uh, to cool buildings uh, to create air conditioning. So therefore, you reduce air conditioning demand. So ice storage is very common actually already. I mean, our, our my university, Stanford, has a big ice cube under a building that's been there since 1998. So it's been around a long time, and there's a lot of ice storage around big buildings and even stadiums around the United States. Um, you, know, you can do the same thing with hot water. You don't actually have to make ice. You can actually just cool down water or heat it up. So there's this is called thermal energy storage. And then finally, you can use uh, hydrogen uh, as a form of storage. When you have extra wind or solar power, you can then use that extra wind or solar to produce hydrogen that is then can be used at any time for transportation or industrial purposes. And then finally, uh, there's a technique called demand response management where uh, utilities uh, will give people better rates if they don't use power at certain times of the day. And so that's just uh, controlling the demand, the time of uh, energy demand by uh, favorable rates. Um, just a couple more things about these energy plans. Um, you know, we've, so we developed plans for the entire United States, and we've actually shown now for the whole U.S. that we can make the entire United States reliable in terms of the grid with a 100% wind, water, solar system. But the, the land area that we need, I mean, well, what would the system look like? Across the U.S., the whole U.S. would be powered in 2050 by, we propose, by 50% uh, wind, so about 31% onshore wind, 19% offshore wind, um, about 45% uh, solar with most of that in power plants and about 8.5% of the solar is on rooftops, and then a tiny amount of hydroelectric and tidal wave power. Now, the total land area required 
on land is uh, for what's called foot footprint on the ground is less than half a percent of the U.S. And then you need additional spacing area between wind turbines, which is about one and a half percent of the U.S. Um, but you get by doing this conversion, you'd get a reduction of power demand just because the electricity is more efficient than burning fuels of about 30%. And then we can get another 6 to 7% reduction of power demand by end-use energy efficiency improvements. So end-use energy efficiency is really important in this. And hopefully, theoretically, we can even get more energy efficiency improvements, but we're just assuming that we're going to get a modest amount of energy efficiency improvements. Um, now, what's the timeline for these conversions? Um, we hope that by 2030, we would have about 80 to 85% conversion to wind, water, solar for all sectors. And then by 2050, 100%. This really means that all new energy today should, should be wind, water, solar, all new energy and transportation. So no more uh, fossil fuel, biofuel, electric power plants. All new vehicles should be electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Um, but at least by 2020, we should have everything new. So because right now we don't have everything new, and we do have a lot that's new. Maybe 50% of the electricity in the U.S. is new. Is wind, water, solar now each year, and there's a growing uh, share of electric vehicles. But there's still huge numbers of other fossil fuel vehicles being sold. And you know, lest we think, well, this is not feasible. I mean, it turns out in both New York and California, uh, both the governors have started to adopt these plans that we've developed. So in California, um, we proposed our energy plan, 100% energy plan, to the governor's office in uh, last October, and which was proposing 80% conversion by 2030. And in January, the Governor Brown um, announced in a State of the State address that he's going to adopt 50% uh, conversion to wind, water, solar for all sectors. And specifically, he mentioned electricity, transportation, and in um, energy, if, uh, in buildings, energy efficiency built in buildings. And so 50% instead of 80%, so that's adopting 60% of our plan, basically, for California, which is a good start. Um, but in New York, actually, even a year before that, uh, we proposed to New York's governor to convert to wind, water, solar, and we gave suggested first steps. We gave five suggested first steps, and he adopted three of them, which were uh, to uh, spend about a billion dollars on a green bank, about a billion and a half dollars on solar uh, rooftops, and thousands of charging stations for electric vehicles throughout the state of New York. And he adopted that in the state of the state address, I think, the beginning of 2013. And the other thing is, by giving him a plan, the New York governor, a plan, an alternative to natural gas uh, he was able, that facilitated his uh, ability to ban fracking in New York. So that was, uh, but that also involved a lot of um, activism by others, including Mark Ruffalo and, and Josh Fox and thousands of thousands of uh, people helping out. Um, and so I just want to summarize kind of what, for the U.S., you know, what are the benefits of such a conversion? If you look at all the individual state plans and aggregate them, so we found that by converting to wind, water, solar across the U.S., we can reduce power demand by about 37%, just by most of that 30 percentage points by the efficiency of electricity and about 7 percentage points by uh, end-use energy efficiency improvement. 
we'd eliminate about 63,000 air pollution deaths per year in the state, in the country, uh, which equivalent to about 3.2% of the GDP in terms of cost. So there's a big benefit in terms of health cost savings from getting rid of fossil fuels and biofuels. Uh, we'd eliminate about $730 billion per year in global climate costs, which is similar in cost to the air pollution costs. Well, sorry, it would be it would be global climate costs due to U.S. emissions by 2050 that would be eliminated. We would create about 5 million 40-year construction jobs and about 2.4 million 40-year operation jobs while losing about 3.9 million fossil fuel and nuclear jobs. And so there's a net job gain across the U.S. Some states that would lose, but um, I mean New York would win um, in terms of job creation, and there would be a net win across the U.S. Uh, we'd require less than half a percent of U.S. land for footprints and 1.5 to 2 percent for spacing. And we could make this whole thing 100 percent reliable. And with the cost of electricity in this reliable system, we've calculated between 10 and 11 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, there are barriers such as upfront costs and transmission needs and, of course, lobbying and politics. Um, but we feel that these can be um, overcome with education and with people's desire to actually make a better future for their children and grandchildren. Um, so anyway, I'll open it up. I think there are some questions or some that uh, maybe Amy or others have. I'm happy to. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. I mean, I, you know, this is a, a really exciting project, so I'm, I'm so happy that you're on the show today and explaining this to us. Um, I love where you're going with it, and I, congratulations on the win in California and uh, the fracking ban in New York and the governor adopting a number of your, um, your principles. I, I guess I want to start a little bit with where we are and then talk about how do we get there. Um, so, for example, in my state in Connecticut, it looks like we are poised to invest a lot of money on a natural gas infrastructure for the state. And, you know, in the movie Gas, Fox makes the case that end-to-end -end natural gas is just as bad or worse for the atmosphere due to the methane leakage during production and transmission. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, well, natural gas is, is very dirty fuel, and it's in no means a, by no means a clean fuel. It, if you compare it to wind power, it puts out between around 60, well, just conventional natural gas puts out about 60 times more air pollution and climate relevant emissions per unit energy generated than wind. And even in terms of bird kills, it's about 10 times more birds are killed by natural gas due to air pollution, due to the ground degradation, uh, habitat destruction, and even the buildings uh, compared with wind power. Even though wind, you know, people complain about bird kills, it's actually one-tenth of the bird kills death uh, compared with natural gas or coal. Uh, now, natural gas in comparison with coal, it has benefits and disbenefits. So this is what people are always comparing it to, is comparing to coal. But coal is not what you want to compare natural gas to. You want to compare it to what's good, which is wind and solar. And when you compare it to wind and solar, then you see it's not good at all. But even compared to coal, uh, what you find is that although natural gas reduces the carbon emissions relative to coal, um, it actually causes more air pollution. Sorry, I should, I should move back backtrack. 
it, it reduces the carbon directly emissions, of, like carbon dioxide emissions, but it actually causes more overall warming than coal because, ironically, coal, which is actually which is a dirtier fuel, puts out more sulfur oxides in particular. And sulfur oxides mask about half of the warming due to coal. And so, as a result, although um, although carbon coal puts out more carbon dioxide. Warming uh, over a hundred-year time frame due to coal is actually less than that of natural gas because coal has more sulfur oxides that mask half of its warming. Um, but they're both bad, so this is why you don't want to even get into these arguments about you know what's better, coal or natural gas, because they're both like significantly way worse than wind or solar. And so we're just saying, well, should we get something that's really bad or something that's just a little bit less bad, not something not something that's dirty versus clean. They're both dirty. Um, and so there, and especially when you look at what's called the hundred, the 20 year time frame versus the hundred year time frame, because people try to minimize the impacts of natural gas by saying, well, if you look over a hundred years, it's climate relevant emissions are even less or, or low compared to even, you know, let's say 20 years. But we're concerned about the next 20 years because that's the time scale of, over which the Arctic sea ice can melt entirely. And so if we have something that causes strong warming over the 20 years but causes weaker warming over 100 years, well, we're going to melt the ice, and that'll cause a positive feedback, and that'll trigger faster warming, cataclysmic warming. And so we should be focused only on the 20-year time frame. And when you look at the 20-year time frame, uh, methane, which is the main emission from natural gas that's relevant to climate, uh, causes 100 times more warming per unit mass than carbon dioxide. And coal doesn't put out much methane, but natural gas puts out a huge amount of methane. Uh, so, and it's not only the methane from natural gas, you also have black carbon from flaring. There's a lot of flaring of natural gas due to trying to burn off and leak it, leak emissions. And you find that there's a huge amount of black carbon that then goes and coats the Arctic sea ice and melts that faster. And then now we're finding that by flyovers over cities that there's huge amounts of all the natural gas infrastructure, every building that has natural gas in it has little pipes that leak. I mean, every, on average, it might be like 10 leaks per building. Uh, and you can look over a city at the methane levels. They're all elevated because there's thousands and millions of leaks across cities from natural gas pipelines. And so, and those are contributing to warming. And those aren't even counted when you're looking at the gas versus coal infrastructure. Uh, people don't even count those leaks that are at the end use. But now people are discovering them. And then you have fracking even makes things worse because it enhances the methane leaks from the ground while, while during the drilling. And some of these leaks go on even after the fracking well has been sealed. Because the seals, 5% of all uh, fracking wells, the casing, the cement casings leak immediately, and 50% of all fracking wells leak over their lifetime sometimes. Anyway, so that's a long explanation to say why it's not, you know, natural gas is not, um, something good or something that should be embraced in any way, shape, or form to address climate or air pollution problems. Not one of the solutions. So I'm going to take that clip and transcribe it and, and bring it to my governor so that hopefully we can um, prevent this huge investment in, in an infrastructure that's not going to help us. Um, the other uh, source of power that is often touted as clean energy is nuclear power. Um, a recent New York 
Times article talked about the EPA is proposing to give states with nuclear reactors a credit of 5.8% toward their over, overall carbon reduction requirements. Um, and you know, the utilities that operate these nuclear power plants are actually lobbying against subsidies for the wind and the solar, claiming that they're bad for nuclear energy, which we need to meet our emissions goals. So your analysis says that nuclear power results in up to 25 times more carbon emissions than wind. Can you explain the research behind these findings? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Um, just to put it in actual emissions, um, a wind turbine over its lifetime, this includes primarily the building of the wind turbine. If you look at the current uh, infrastructure used to build energy devices, um, when you build a wind turbine and then you, um, you use carbon because you use fossil fuel to build the turbine, but then when it runs over its lifetime, you use nothing. Um, and then, but when you decommission at the end of its lifetime, scrapping, if you had the same infrastructures today, you'd have to use some carbon. But when you do the calculation, you find out that the emissions from wind are between five and 10 grams of carbon per kilowatt hour of electricity generated over the wind turbine's lifetime. So if I just keep that as a baseline, five to 10 grams of carbon, well, it's grams of carbon per kilowatt hour. Now, there have been many studies that look at the same metric for nuclear power, that you know, how much carbon does it take to build the nuclear plant, uh, then and over the lifetime, it turns out not only do you, well, not only do you have to build the nuclear plant over the, um, which takes carbon, but more importantly, during the entire lifetime, you need to use your uranium. And how do you use uranium? It's not just mined and thrown into the plant. You have to refine it. And that refining is extremely energy intensive. In fact, there are two coal-fired power plants in the United States whose sole purpose is to refine uranium for nuclear power and, and energy. Sorry, nuclear energy and weapons. And But when you do that calculation, and then you look at the decommissioning point, uh, you find that uh, the average from 103 studies of nuclear plants, just the average, just accounting for that carbon, is about 70 grams of carbon per kilowatt hour. So already we're up to uh, 7 to 14 times more uh, carbon and also air pollution per kilowatt hour uh, compared to wind. Now, but then we haven't even considered the fact that how, well, how long does it take to plan and operate, to plan, between planning and operation of a nuclear power plant? Well, it turns out that there's the construction time of a plant is, let's say, five to eight years or so, but you need anywhere from five to uh, 11 years to get permits to actually plan and permit the plant. So in the U.S., on average, it's 10 to 19 years between planning and operation of a nuclear plant, whereas a wind farm, you know, with, with extreme exceptions, but the average wind farm, an average solar farm in the U.S. is two to five years. So it, it takes, let's say we want to compare a wind versus a nuclear plant and we just start planning now. Well, in two to five years, you'll have the wind plant up and running and developing electricity that's clean. Whereas in the meantime, after five years, let's say you put up a wind plant, uh, you would have to wait at least uh, another five to 14 years before you get the nuclear plant running. But in the meantime, you're running the background electric power grid, which is mostly coal and gas. So it turns out when you add that extra emissions, called opportunity cost emissions, you end up getting 9 to 25 times more carbon uh, and air pollution per kilowatt hour from nuclear than wind. But that's not 
I mean, which is still better than gas, which is 60 times more, and coal, which is even a lot higher. But the, pro the other problems with nuclear are that, well, there's the risk of 1.5% of nuclear power plants ever built have melted down to some degree. There's weapons proliferation issues. Five countries of the world, at least, have developed nuclear weapons capabilities secretly under the guise of civilian nuclear energy programs. So if we want to develop nuclear more, other countries will, will try to um, want to also use nuclear, and this will result ultimately in more weapons proliferation. Uh, and then there's radioactive waste disposal issues. There's the mining damage. and uh, So there are all sorts of issues. I'm not even talking about the cost. The cost of nuclear is so much more. And it's subsidized as well to the hilt in the United States. And so it's it just it's just never going to happen. So it's, it's almost surprising people are talking about it. It's only the industry is really trying to push it to get more money for themselves. Yeah, and, and they do have a lot of lobbyists out there still. So let's turn the conversation a little bit toward um, wind. And, um, you know, you mentioned the exception of a wind farm that takes more than uh, two to five years. And here on the East Coast, there's this long-awaited project called Cape Wind off the coast of Cape Cod that I think has been in the planning stage for about 10 years. And recently, um, some agreements that the utilities had made with the project have expired. And so there have been headlines that it doesn't look good for for the project. What what does the political future look like for offshore wind farming in the U.S.? And, and why are we so far behind um, Europe and the U.K. with this? Right. Well, I should say that, yeah, Cape Wind is like that one exception I was talking about when I was talking comparing nuclear with wind in terms of how long it takes. I mean, because there are no offshore wind farms in the U.S. yet. So the onshore ones take, you know, only two to five years. But the first offshore one has been taking forever uh, because of, well, not only, I mean, it's, it turns out in retrospect, it's because of all this opposition by the nuclear and gas industries. They're trying to keep it, you know, trying to keep wind out. In fact, the reason that Cape Wind lost its uh, PPA purchase, power purchase agreements. And so recently, the, yeah, the Cape Wind had these power purchase agreements, but they were they expired if they couldn't get the certain permits by a certain date. And that's what happened, and that's because they had to fight off all these lawsuits by nuclear and natural gas proponents. And the lawsuits have delayed things and caused them to lose their power purchase agreements, and that's going to even delay further the first offshore wind farm. And... So it's like, but on the other hand, the good news is the Obama administration has actually, I think they recently, just in the last few days, um, uh, charted out some approvals for uh, offshore places, places where you could have offshore wind in the U.S. There's lots of mapping, so there are a lot of proposals for offshore wind farms. Um, they, to get them through, the, the first one is going to be most difficult. In Europe, they've had offshore wind for now 20 years. And it's growing every year, and it's very effective. So it's just incredibly surprising that the U.S. can't get its act together and put offshore wind. But it's, it seems to be so far, it's just complete a war by the gas and the nuclear industries trying to oppose it. And so they're causing a lot of damage to the potential for the U.S. to, uh, you know, for the U.S. to become more healthy, to reduce the, their, the impacts of fossil fuels. Um, and so this, I, I think it's just a political solution. It's just a it's a political issue, and also but also educating the public. And this is kind of where 
week on them, and there are a lot, people have a lot of myths, a lot of myths that have been floating around about wind in general um, that need to be dispelled by just you know people who know about the information you know, providing that information. So I can't give you a recipe to how to get that first offshore wind farm going, but um, it you know what this. There's been a lot of good news and, but also bad news at the same time in terms of just the, how uh, the public and certain, well, it's usually a very small number of people have tried to block and have successfully blocked offshore wind in the U.S. Yeah, so given that, you know, uh, many of the people on this call are studying sustainable business um, within the current policy environment, what do you think business can do to accelerate the conversion to wind and, and other renewables? Um, you know, what what actions should should businesses be taking? Well, businesses can benefit significantly. I mean, certainly, um, a lot of in fact, there's been a lot of big businesses have been very supportive of the Solutions Project because you know they have similar goals. Like for example, Walmart was very the support of the Solutions Project because they had a goal or have a goal of going to 100% renewable energy to power all their stores. You know, you know, you think of Walmart as a very selfish or big corporation that doesn't really care about anything. They probably don't, but they, but they do. From a business point of view, they do no good. I mean, they do try to make money in the way that they they do realize that going clean to clean energy will save them money in the long run, and even they're interested, like um, we did a study looking at what's the impact of large arrays of offshore wind turbines on hurricane dissipation. They're interested, they're interested in this because uh, it turns out large arrays of offshore wind will dissipate hurricanes, and they're interested not only because offshore wind would help generate a lot of energy for their stores in the south, southeast, but also they lose a lot of stores due to damage from severe weather. And so they're wondering if this would be a way to reduce both those impacts by having lots of offshore wind that could power their stores and reduce the impacts of uh, severe weather on, this, uh, on their coastal stores. Um, but other companies like uh, Google and Facebook, you know, they want, are becoming more interesting in using clean energy to power their stations because they realize that you stabilize the price of energy with wind, water, and solar because there's zero fuel cost. If you think about it, I mean, natural gas, which has lower capital costs than wind, um, has finite and rising fuel costs. I mean, you always have to pay for the fuel over time. And the, that price of extracting and transporting and refining fuel goes up over time, whereas wind has zero fuel costs. So once you put in the device, your costs are constant over time. And this is an extreme advantage. So if you see into the future and project the numbers into the future, what you see right now is, well, Capital costs of wind and solar are coming down, and the fuel costs are zero, so you have lower costs over time, whereas uh, the cost, the capital costs of gas and, and coal are pretty constant, but their fuel costs rise over time, so their overall costs rise over time. So we've already seen that right now in the United States, wind is the cheapest form of electricity. It's the unsubsidized cost of wind across the U.S. on average is 3.7 cents a kilowatt hour now in Guess what gas is? It's between six and eight cents. So it's, wind is actually half the cost of natural gas. New wind is half the cost of new natural gas. Utility scale solar is also six to eight cents a kilowatt hour. So it's about the same as natural gas. 
Um, but residential rooftop solar is about two to three times higher than the utility scale solar, so that's more expensive. But utility solar and wind are actually the same or less than gas, and so we and we can see, and if we go into the future in 10 years, it's going to even be more stark. And so there will be this natural transition. We just have to speed it up. Um, so, but companies can really benefit, companies see it in their interest to go to these clean energy sources because they realize that will stabilize their, their costs will go down in the long run. They realize it's actually economically it makes sense to go to clean renewable energy. So how do you see the, the energy infrastructure then? You touched on this in your introduction, but you know we hear this argument from the utilities now that if um, more and more businesses and maybe suburban homeowners are sort of off the grid with renewables, then utility rates are going to go up much higher for people living in cities who, who can't do this. Um, how, how does your energy mix work with the utilities and, and keep the rates consistent for, you know, or at least on par for everybody? Well, I think the utilities have a, uh, have a motivation to actually take part in some of these, um, you know, if uh, off the, so off the grid developments. I mean, I don't think, I think everybody else, most people still be connected to the grids. I don't think we're going to have, it's not like you're just going to have like these micro grids everywhere that are totally disconnected. I think you, there's still benefit of being connected to the grid, but still generate most of your own power. The utilities would, you know, would have, uh, should be motivated and are motivated, I think, already in a lot of cases to actually invest in those in that infrastructure themselves. So, because not all homeowners are going to want to, um, you know, go spend the time and the, and the money to put up their own system. So utilities can actually lease, you know, let's say a solar system to, uh, a homeowner, and that so change their business model. I mean, I don't. I think they're just going to the utilities are just going to adapt. It's not. It's not just like yeah, their rates are not just going to go up. I mean, the fact is the cost of energy should come down to because wind and solar are cheaper than gas and coal. So even though there might be, yeah, maybe there are fewer, let's say there are fewer people in the pool, uh, the cost of the raw cost of energy should be less with large-scale wind and solar than it is with the current fossil fuel infrastructure. So people should see their rates go down. And in fact, you can see there's some data already in several states. So take, for example, um, uh, right now the two states with the largest amount of electricity from wind are Iowa and South Dakota with close to 30% of all their electricity from wind. You take those two states plus the next eight states with the highest fraction of electricity from wind. And you look at the price of electricity um, in those states over the last five years, it's actually gone down about 0.1%. Compared to all the other uh, 40 states, the price of electricity over the last five years went up about 8%. So those states that invested more in wind saw stabilization of their prices of electricity. All the other states saw an increase in the price of electricity. So the more wind and solar you're going to have on the, on the large scale, excuse me, on the grid, uh, you expect to stabilize the energy prices. And so people should even if fewer people are on the grid, uh, you should still expect a drop or stabilization of the price of electricity. Well, I want to leave some time for people who are calling in with questions, so I'm just going to ask you one more question and then see if um, Stephanie has other callers. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about how, as a scientist, you've partnered with a filmmaker 
And I'm thinking about the movie Inconvenient Truth, which was impactful in many ways. And for me, what really got my attention was when Al Gore kind of casually says, well, we fixed the hole in the ozone layer. I was really surprised to hear that. Like, I knew there were efforts underway to reduce atmospheric CFLs, but I didn't know that it actually worked. So I was wondering where the headlines were. It's like, hey, we won. So when I learned about the solution project, uh, I thought, you know, we really have to promote this. And um, so in my state, we're launching an, an initiative called Connecticut First with the idea of starting a friendly competition to be the first state to source 100% renewable energy. And I'm wondering, do you know of other groups in the Northeast or elsewhere in the country that are mobilizing a campaign around the Solution Project's vision and, and how we might connect these groups together? Um, I mean, well, the, I mean, I think the best person to, who would know kind of most up to, most up to date would be the executive director of the Solutions Project, Sarah Hope. She would, she would actually kind of know specifically who they're working, who we're working with. Um, you know, some of the groups that I know, um, we've been in talking with a lot, like Sierra Club, for example, they've, you know, we we proposed 100% plans for New York and the U.S., and they now have as their goal 100% renewable energy. And so, you know, we're kind of now working in parallel with them. Uh, NRDC is another big group that uh, we worked with, and actually helped a lot in New York. And and so they have similar goals, but they also they're a little bit, you know, they're such a big group that they have all sorts of goals for all sorts of things. So don't wanted to say that they're just focused on this. Um, but, you know, they've been very supportive of our goals uh, for 100% renewable energy. Um, there's a group, the Citizens Climate Lobby, that's, uh, you know, they have the same goals, too. They have a different approach. They're just looking at it from the policy point of view in terms of, like, say, a carbon tax or something, um, you know, to try to reduce carbon as opposed to just trying to just change the energy infrastructure. Um, but we've run across several groups that... Um, are completely supportive of what we're doing, uh, you know, but they all have their own sub-agendas. But I think Sarah Hope would be the person to contact to see who's really aligned closely um, with what we're doing in terms of trying to get things implemented. Um, okay, well, have, I will you know, follow up with her. And I, I have, like, a ton more questions I'd love to ask, but I'm going to first ask Stephanie if um, there are any call-ins of people who'd like to ask Mark some questions. Sure. Thanks, Amy. So if anyone is interested in asking Mark a question, please press 5 star on your phone, and I'll unmute you. Um, so Amy, we'll just wait a second. If no one chimes in right away, you should move forward. But just again, 5 star if anyone would like to ask a question. All right, so we do have one on the line, and I'm going to unmute the line 973-669-3341. Please go ahead. Hi, Mark. This is Claire Summer, and I am wondering if you guys are connected to Project Drawdown, which is the really exciting initiative that Paul Hawken is spearing up. Um, I've heard of them, and I think I've been in contact with them. Um, but I, I'm not, well, again, maybe Sarah, I hope that the Solutions Project would know more, you know, if they were doing anything specifically with them. I mean, I, I've kind of focused more on the science part of it, so don't know exactly all the interactions we've had with the different groups. 
but I, I definitely heard of them and I'm aware of it. And uh, I think we, yeah, we have some similar goals. I just don't remember how we're interacting with them. Okay, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I think it's an amazing um, idea to connect via SARA to see how things like Connecticut First and other initiatives can start really working together. So thank you so much for, for all your time today. Well, thank you very much for your questions. Great. Uh, we have another one coming in off the, on the line, and that's from number 203-535-3300, and I'm going to unmute you. So you can go ahead with your question. Hey, my name is Miles. I'm from Connecticut, and I also attend the University of Connecticut. And I really love the idea, and I love everything you talked about. So I'm curious what a college student like me who's interested in the idea and interested in, and you know, helping Connecticut or wherever I move to after become one of the first states to do it. What what can I do to help? Oh, it's a good question. Um, well, certainly getting involved in some grassroots effort is. Helpful. I mean, there, there are things people can do on the personal level in their own homes and, um, and lifestyles. But in terms of yeah, join, maybe joining a group, um, the Solutions Project is trying to because we've had a lot of people interested in kind of working with in working with us. And I think and because we're somewhat new and growing, you know, we haven't had a lot of definition of how people can specifically help. But I think that they've on the website they might. Um, now have more things, you know, possible things that people can do. Um, but, uh, you know, and certainly at a university, uh, there, probably, there are probably grassroots movements going on at your at the university where, um, like at our university, we have groups called like the Solar and Wind Energy Project, and um, we have a group, a solutions project group here, and we have, but there's like seven or eight different energy clubs that get involved in um, either, like some of the clubs that are on our campus actually try to change the campus itself, get the campus to go to clean renewable energy. Uh, so that's one idea, but if you're on doing on a larger scale, like to change your state government's um, vision, then you probably need to get involved with a grassroots movement in Connecticut, um, in your state. and uh, uh, Or a national movement, like if there's certainly the, you know, the Sierra Club, for example, has branches everywhere, um, every state. So it becomes, you know, it depends if you want to go along the activism route versus the research route, because you could also try to study it if you want to get into a PhD and do um, research, or if you want to get involved in um, state politics, you could try to work with a, work with a congressperson or with a state legislator and do an internship or something that might be one way. Okay, cool. Thanks. And Miles, this is Amy. I'm just going to jump in and say if you um, if you write to uh, MBA at bard.edu and just ask for my info, um, you know we can get in touch directly, and I can tell you more about the Connecticut First Initiative, which is really just starting. We'd love you to be a part of that. Any more call-ins, Stephanie? Well, what was that email one more time? Um, MBA at bard.edu. Okay, thanks. You're trying to get in touch with Amy from Mark Jacobson's podcast, and they'll, they'll put us in touch. Okay. Excellent. Um, if there are any more questions, please do press 5 star at this time. And if not, um, we'll have Amy continue. 
It looks like, Amy, no more questions at the moment. So go ahead. I know you have a few more. Sure, I do, actually. Um, this is actually a question from um, somebody who had emailed me and asked me to ask it. And she is wondering, Mark, if there are any current models that would serve as an example of how a state could transform the avoided disease care costs that you talk about in the solutions project into renewable energy infrastructure construction? Or do you have a vision of, of how we could do that um, with, you know, if there's some kind of credit for that? Sorry, uh, I think I understand it is how, we would, how do we calculate how much reduction of air pollution you get from changing That's energy infrastructure? How we calculate, because you have made the calculations that we would avoid um, thousands of deaths per year and you, you, you said earlier that it, that represented 3.2% of, of our GDP. So what, like, are, do you have any um, examples or are there any policies that are envisioned or being proposed that would turn that benefit into some, something like a renewable energy credit? Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, hmm. I, you know, I don't know if it's been put into a policy. I mean, it is certainly the EPA uses numbers like this to try to argue for more, you know, power plant control, emission controls. So they're, like the EPA is very aware of these types of numbers and, and calculate and benefit, cost benefits, and they do lots of cost benefits, and the California Resources Board does it as well. So they try to turn it into policies more by, but I don't know if they actually, anybody's actually put it into like a specific credit for, you know, some specific technology, for example. Um, yeah, I don't know, but that would be a good project for somebody. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very cool idea for somebody studying policy to divert the, the cost avoidance into credits for renewable energy. I thought that was fascinating. Um, I do have one more question for you. I think we've just got time for that. Um, this is a tough one. According to James Hansen's research at NASA, we need not only to produce all our energy from renewables by 2050, but we also need to capture and sequester atmospheric CO2 in amounts equal to something like what we are currently emitting globally. And can you describe the technology needed for this process? Or, you know, is it agriculture and forestry that's going to do that? What What is the solution for carbon recapture? Well, I, well, I, I, think, I think of it in two ways. I think the capture would only be necessary if we can't change the energy infrastructure worldwide. Um, but I think I actually think that if we change the energy infrastructure worldwide, not just in the U.S., but if we can do it worldwide, then we you do get this natural removal because the lifetime of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is around 50 years, meaning that well, doesn't mean that you know one molecule goes up it'll take 50 years to come down. It means that over 50, if one if 100 molecules go up after 50 years, uh, that'll mean that about 62 of those molecules will have come out of the atmosphere. And then after another 50 years, then 62% more, more will have come out of the atmosphere. So uh, it takes a while to get all of it out. But if you can stop the emissions, then you do get this uh, gradual decrease of the CO2 naturally because the CO2 is going to come out and absorb, get absorbed into plants, go into the oceans. 
And whereas you'd only need to suck it out of the atmosphere if you can't replace, if you, if you can't um, stop the emissions. So I think I'm, you know, he, he might be thinking, you know, I don't know you how, specifically what he was thinking in terms of, you know, how much he thought that the energy infrastructure could be changed, but he may be thinking you can't change the energy infrastructure so much. So I think you can. It's technically and economically possible. Whether it's done politically is a different question. But if you did have to remove it, I don't know how feasible it is actually to take it out uh, on a large scale by human resources. The amount, the money you'd have to spend on the cat, on the removal is so huge um, that you might as well spend that money on renewable energy and actually stop it from being emitted in the first place. <clears throat> so I think it's better to stop the emissions than to try to remove it uh, by human sor- sources because it does come out naturally if you do stop the emissions. So that would well, be my strategy. I, I, you know, I, I'm going to send you, I, I have a graph that I had taken from some of his research that showed that not it was a combination of switching to renewables by 2050 and doing some form of sequestration. But we'll take that offline. I'll send it to you and you can email me. Sure. That. Last quick question. Current events question, uh, as we're seeing oil and gas prices plummet, is this bad or good for renewable energy? Um, it's hard to say because it's uh, maybe it's too early to tell. I mean, some like oil and gas are for transportation, so it doesn't really affect electricity so much. So it doesn't really would not necessarily affect the amount of wind and solar because wind and solar. I mean, wind, as I mentioned, is already – it has to cost of natural gas. So petroleum uh, costs going down do not reduce natural gas costs going down, uh, or not sufficiently to make gas less expensive than wind. So I don't think it's affecting electricity that much. It may make it more – let people have less incentive to go to electric cars. Um, however, uh, there's still a financial advantage for people to go to an electric car right now because suppose let's say the, when the cost of gas was four dollars a gallon of gasoline, um, it costs equivalent cost for driving an electric car is eighty cents a gallon. So if somebody drives their car uh, fifteen thousand miles per year for fifteen years, they save twenty thousand dollars of fuel cost when gasoline is four dollars a gallon. Now let's say the cost of gasoline now is three dollars a gallon, then um, Basically, instead of 20, saving $20,000 with, with an electric car, you might save $13,000 with an electric car. So it's still cheaper to have an electric car than to have a gasoline car. People don't realize this because they haven't done those calculations. But um, it is still cheaper, more efficient you have, and cleaner. And because that doesn't even count for all the health cost savings of driving the electric car um, to society. So there's still a net benefit of driving an electric car because the electric cars are not $13,000 more expensive than the gas equivalent gasoline cars. Um, so, it, but it does make it more d- difficult in people's minds because they think they'll, they'll hang on to their gasoline car longer. But the other benefit of lower gasoline prices, although it's kind of a strange benefit, is that um, it makes it more difficult for, uh, it's making it more expensive for tar sands oil relatively. So, there's less incentive to develop tar sands oil in Canada. And so as a result, in Alberta, for example, there's been – the revenues have gone down significantly. Um, and so they've gone into deficit because they've lost so much money 
and so there's less incentive to develop uh, tar sands oil, so which is a benefit, ironically. And the same thing, I think even fracking has gone has dropped tremendously um, for, for you know, fracking for oil um, has dropped tremendously because it's that's relatively more expensive than conventional oil. Uh, so there is some benefit of this cost going down, but there's also this cost that let people have less incentive to go to electric cars. So double-edged sword. But anyway, we are running a little bit over time, and I don't want to keep you longer than promised, but I, I thank you so much, um, Professor Jacobson, for taking the time to speak with us today. And Stephanie, do you have things to say to wrap up the call? Yeah, just thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jacobson, for being with us today, for providing so many facts, the scientific arguments behind things. I learned a ton. I feel like I just have so much more evidence now when I have conversations with people. And um, you know, I had some great words of advice for um, a student who's on the line. And just before we sign off, do you have any parting words for specifically MBA students who are focused in sustainability, who are working on the business case for sustainability? Well, I would first say, you know, I, a lot of people are very pessimistic about the future, but I'm actually very optimistic because I'm, I know there is a solution to this problem. And so maybe it's because I just am so saturated by all this information that in numbers that, um, you know, maybe I feel that confidence that other people haven't felt because they're just not sure what the numbers are. But having seen all the numbers and, and the calculations, I know there's a solution. So I, I just want to say that people should stay positive and think that there is a solution and just go out there with the idea that they can solve the problem. I mean, just think that don't be pessimistic, stay optimistic, uh, believe in the solution, and really see well, what do we need to do to get it to get us to that point. Don't you know, you know, ask, just tell yourself, you know, what, what can I do to actually uh, push this further, to push the envelope further, to get us to the point of solving the problem. Uh, don't for a minute think that there's not a solution because there's definitely a solution and it'll, it'll, you know, everybody will benefit in the long run from the solution in terms of price stability, uh, job creation, reducing uh, air pollution impacts and health costs, reducing global warming costs and impacts. So there's only going to be a benefit of doing this change. And the other way to think about it is that eventually everything will convert to wind, water, or solar because there will be there is a limited amount of fossil fuels that eventually run out. So um, we'd rather be leaders than followers. So just think of let's try to lead and this change rather than fall because if we don't do it, here somebody else is eventually going to make, you know, make this change because the change will occur. It's just a matter of when. Uh, so let's try to be leaders and followers and stay positive. Yeah, that's, those are all great points, and it's wonderful. Um, the BARD MBA tagline is lead the change. So love to hear that. I'm really happy to hear that you there's a solution out there and that uh, you want people to stay positive. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Amy, for leading a wonderful discussion. And for everyone on the line, join us next Friday for a conversation with Peter Boyd, who is Senior Advisor and Climate Lead of the B Team. So thank you all so much. Have a great weekend, and speak to you next week. Thank you. Okay, thank you.